we're talking to people, we're sharing this information with our family and friends. And it's like, you know, sometimes when they don't listen, it's very frustrating because you're thinking, man, if I could just get you to do this, because, you know, one day we're all going to be vegan. I mean, this, what the way we're eating right now is not sustainable for our health. It's not sustainable for the environment. The world is going vegan. And one day people were not eating vegan are going to think back and feel like, wow, I was such a, excuse my language, dumbass for eating animals. I wish I had known. Welcome back to another episode of the PBN Podcast. Today I'm joined by the President and CEO of the Institute for Plant-Based Medicine, the gastroenterologist Dr. Angie Sedeghi. Based in California, Dr. Sedeghi is an expert in the digestive system and a passionate vegan activist. She's committed to helping people through an integrative approach that helps them lead healthier and longer lives. Dr. Angie's personal journey is what has inspired her to help her patients stay fit, healthy through nutrition and fitness. She had previously suffered from health problems such as severe eczema, elevated cholesterol fatigue and weight issues. After being vegetarian for several years in 2014, she switched to a whole food plant-based diet and adopted regular fitness into her lifestyle. This proved to be transformative for her, restoring her health and improving her physical fitness in a short span of time. She lost 30 pounds of weight in eight months and even gained the confidence to enter into a fitness competition. Today, Dr. Angie heads the Institute of Plant-Based Medicine, whose mission is to treat, prevent, and reverse disease with a multi-speciality approach combining plant-based nutrition and evidence-based medicine. She continues her work of treating her patients and educating fellow physicians and healthcare professionals on the positive impact of evidence-based nutrition on health and disease. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Angie Sedeghi to the podcast to discuss her journey as a gastroenterologist and vegan advocate. I'm Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. As always, don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Angie. What a pleasure to finally sit down with you and hear your story. Thank you, Robbie. It's a pleasure to be with you and Plant-Based News. As a gastroenterologist, I am faced with many patients with many different types of gastrointestinal problems that are chronic, debilitating, and quite reversible, and a lot of times preventable. So the gastrointestinal tract is a very long, torturous tract, mouth, esophagus, stomach, small bowel, and the colon. It also includes the liver and the pancreas. And in synchrony, they work very hard. The GI systems work very hard to digest and absorb food and the nutrients that you consume. If you don't respect the balance and if one eats unhealthy, over time, chronic disease sets in. So the consumption of processed foods, animal products, and a dairy can cause havoc on the digestion. When done for long periods of time, in combination with genetics and some other lifestyle factors like lack of exercise, smoking, and drinking, can it, it can be a bad deal and it can cause a lot of disease. So before we get started, I always like to ask my guests this first question, which is how did you discover the vegan or plant-based lifestyle? Where did that all begin for you? So about 17 years ago, I became a vegetarian for the animal rights and the moral reasons. About seven years ago, I was at a conference and I was uh, listening to the speaker speak about the health benefits of eating more plant-based. I had this discussion with my cousin who is a vegan and uh, she opened my eyes about the cruel practices of the dairy industry and the pain they that's inflicted upon these poor sentient beings. And I'm such a huge animal lover. And I really realized that at that moment, I just could not continue paying into this industry who are practicing things that I just don't believe in. So I, I just stopped, wanted to stop paying into the industry. I also wanted to become healthier. So I started a plant-based lifestyle. I went 100% vegan and ate a whole food plant-based diet. Now, let me tell you, I was very ill. I had chronic fatigue, the worst pustular eczema you could imagine, where I had these big, ugly bumps all over my skin that were super itchy. Couldn't sleep at night because I itched my for like years during my lifetime. I had to live on Benadryl and these anti-itch medicines because my eczema was so debilitating. I just couldn't function without medications to stop the itch, to take away my rash. I would put tons of steroid creams on my skin to try to get rid of my eczema, not knowing that something in that dairy 
was causing my eczema. And it could be the whey protein in dairy, it could be the casein, it could have been some of the sugar, something I was allergic to. And I didn't know. So I kept, it's so indoctrinated in our culture, in our, in our life that, you know, you, you know, you need, you should eat dairy, if, even though it comes from a cow and it just doesn't make sense for a human to drink cow's milk or eat cow's milk products. It's so indoctrinated. We just don't even think about it. It's like really stupid that I never, ever thought, why am I drinking this large mammal's milk? So anyhow, I had continued for forever and seven or maybe even eight years ago, after my eyes uh, were open to the entire thing, I stopped consuming it. And, you know, it was life changing for me. My eczema cleared up over, overnight. I could barely function at work. I was a resident at USC. I remember I could barely make it to my grand rounds in the morning because I was so tired. I would drive 17 miles to work and I could barely get out of the car and function and pay attention. And, you know, it was just so awful because I felt like a 90 year old and I was like in my early thirties and I could barely function. And you know, it was just terrible. I, I I was like fatigue all the time. I couldn't function. And it's just, I, I, I didn't know what to do though. I had no idea what I was just thinking, well, maybe it's just lack of sleep because I'm working 80 hours a week. And I'm sure that was a part of it. But you know, when I went vegan, it's interesting because my energy level went through the roof and I can't even explain. I went from fatigue, feeling like I was hit by a Mack truck every day to having immense energy where I could go work out and, you know, go, 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 go. I would get six hours of sleep and I felt so refreshed and so amazing. I literally went to, at this point in my um, late thirties or forties, no, yeah, I was in my early forties. I felt like I was 25. And I thought, oh my God, there's something to this lifestyle. It, you know, and I did it mostly for moral reasons, but I just, the health benefits I got from it were just tremendous. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. And I thought, I need to share this with my patients. So literally I started, um, you know, sharing the knowledge with my patients. I even founded Institute of Plant-Based Medicine, which is an institute where we have a multi-specialty specialty practice to help patients improve their lifestyle, go more plant-based to reap the benefits of this lifestyle. That's an amazing story, Dr. Angie. And as someone who's experienced chronic illness myself and has seen remarkable changes in my health when I switched to a plant-based diet, you know, it's it's really amazing to see and, and inspiring to hear you make such a huge shift in your life and also pleasing to the ear as well because you know no one likes to hear other people suffering but that suffering that you experience do you ever feel frustrated that there are possibly thousands if not millions of people out there who are going through what you went through and they're still suffering and using copious amounts of pharmaceutical drugs and chemicals to try to help with the symptoms but not realizing that the solution is much much simpler and also much cheaper as well do you ever feel frustrated that the knowledge and wisdom about lifestyle medicine just isn't getting to enough people. I feel very frustrated that the knowledge of lifestyle medicine is not getting to more people out there to help them with preventing chronic disease and treating chronic disease. You know, I have nothing against pharmaceuticals when needed. For example, if you have a chronic disease that is is so advanced that you need pharmaceuticals, that's okay. But I'm frustrated that the knowledge is not out there to try to, first of all, prevent these chronic diseases from occurring. So as a gastroenterologist on a daily basis, I'm always dealing with so many of these chronic debilitating uh, diseases that could have been prevented and could be reversed, given that the patient puts in the time and the effort and changing their lifestyle to a better lifestyle in regards to nutrition and fitness and things like that. It's when you see these debilitating diseases that are quite deadly, like colon cancer, you know, you, you see this over and over again and you, you realize after talking to so many people and, and looking, reflecting back on their lifestyle, you realize how many of these people could have prevented uh, the disease that they're dealing with. You can't help but basically try to change or evolve your practice as a doctor to one that focuses on prevention rather than treatment. And when you reflect back, most of these patients ate a very animal predominant diet. So they consumed a lot of processed meat, fast food in particular, dairy and meat. Most of these patients, if you look back on, on their diet, they, they did not consume a plant predominant diet. I wish that we could prevent cancers and heart disease and inflammation of the colon, uh, something called colitis. 
I wish that we could prevent all these autoimmune diseases. That should be the at the forefront of medicine, prevention, 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 right? Because once things go wrong, then you do have to take out the big guns and you do have to use medications to treat them. And again, there's nothing wrong with that if you have to, but why wouldn't you want to try to prevent disease? For example, it's very important that you, know, you don't smoke cigarettes, right? It's important that you keep your alcoholic beverages to a minimum. It's important that you exercise. It's important to eat a healthy, nutritious, balanced nutrition. It's all of these factors contribute to good health. Now, the knowledge I feel like is out there about how bad you know illegal drugs are, how bad alcohol is, how bad smoking is, but I just feel like there's not enough information out there in regards to the importance of nutrition and how important nutrition is in uh, preventing disease. And uh, I feel like the entire focus should be on preventing disease and and most medical doctors should be talking more about prevention and how important nutrition is and and I feel like sometimes even with my close family members when I talk about the importance of nutrition in preventing disease I feel like people feel invincible and they feel like oh that will never happen to me I can eat hot dogs and burgers and processed food and red meat every day and and I'll be okay I just feel like the, the information is not widely available about the importance of eating a healthy, mostly plant-based diet. So don't you agree that, the, like, for example, the, we, know, we know the deleterious effects of cigarette smoking, right? I think everyone knows that it's very well associated with cancer. But I just don't think that the same amount of focus on healthy living is a healthy nutrition is out there where people understand the importance of eating healthy to prevent disease. Some of it is because, you know, again, um, the information is not widely available. And some of it is because people just sometimes want to behave badly and eat badly. Like I would have people who come to me and they say, you know, I want a holistic approach to my disease. And I say, well, okay, let's, let's try to improve your diet. And and some will flat out say like, no, I, I just want to, um, you know, continue eating. I, I just would rather, um, you know, eat badly. That's fine. You know, you, you've got to work with what people want and, and I can't force people, but it's, it's sad. Ultimately, we cannot force people to be healthy. And, and as, a, as a health practitioner and a, and a medical doctor, you can only recommend people do something. You can obviously strongly recommend. You can say, I strongly recommend you to adopt a whole food plant-based diet. Otherwise, you will see severe and chronic disease in your life, which may end up shortening your life. But I think that this is the problem. It's the behavioral change in people. But there's obviously the individual and then the corporations and governments and, and sort of large organizations which pervade our lives through with advertising, our education, our medical education for doctors and medical people and the media. Now, when the media and the medical facilities are in many ways being heavily funded by large corporations such as the pharmaceutical industry, particularly in America, let's, let's just say, let's just talk about the elephant in the room. People that are sick are a huge amount of profit to the pharmaceutical industry. When you live in a state of chronic disease, you are heavily reliant on big pharma. Now, let's be clear, I'm not against big pharma. I have to take pharmaceutical medicines to help with my chronic pain and a few other things. So I certainly am not against big pharma or the big pharmaceutical industry. Big pharma is such a loaded term, isn't it? <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, there are large corporations that function for profit. And the whole food plant-based diet, which uh, is a protocol really, which can reverse many forms of the leading of human beings today. How much, how shall I say, I don't want to get all conspiratorial, when it comes to sort of like corporate interest, you know, it's a bit like the, the turkeys voting for Christmas. Do you ever see these large corporations ever talking about plant-based nutritional lifestyle medicine? Because I feel like the more that we talk about it, the more we put them out of business. Obviously, they don't talk about eating a healthy plant-based diet. Of course not. But it's not even their job, to be honest with you. They're in the business of making medications. And, you know, like like you said, I mean, I, I, have, I have to take prescription medicines too. And I'm grateful that that technology is available. And we will always need pharmaceuticals. So let's just put it this way. If you ate a healthy plant-based diet and you um, lived a very, very healthy lifestyle, you didn't drink too much, you didn't smoke, you exercised, eventually we all will have disease. Now, 
I personally would rather have disease in my when I'm 90 or 100 rather than when I'm 50. Let's face it, most people get sick in their 50s. And it's terrible because 50 is not that old, right? You would think that you could delay disease, right? But eventually, we will all need hospitals, we'll all need doctors, we'll all need pharmaceuticals, right? Eventually, when you're 90, you're going to have heart problems, you're going to have some disease. So there's nothing wrong with using pharmaceuticals. If you have an infection, a life-threatening infection, please take the antibiotic or you will die, right? If you have high cholesterol due to genetics, you will die of heart disease. So please take your statin. If you have, I don't know, colon cancer, please get the chemotherapy. Well, I'm grateful for the big pharma for what they their product. It's just that I feel like we should not rely on big pharma to, um, you know, use these drugs as a magic wand and act terribly during our entire life and just abuse our bodies with unhealthy foods and then think like, well, there's a drug to fix that. No, there isn't a drug to fix things. These drugs basically just extend a poor quality of life. Most of them are not treating disease and eliminating the root cause of disease. You People have to understand that when you end up on a ton of drugs, it's just most of the time you will end up having a poor quality of life and they're not really fixing things, right? So the focus and the attention should be on prevention. If you eat a whole food plant-based diet, you're less likely to develop these chronic diseases and less likely to use these medicines when you're in your youth, in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, you know? So you're saying that we need to take responsibility for our own health and not rely too heavily. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yes, we have to take responsibility for our health. And if we ever have to use these drugs... If I know in my in my heart that I did everything right, and if, if I have to use a drug to fix whatever that comes, that's okay. I won't feel as guilty. But if I abuse my body and I'm on a hundred medicines, then uh, you know it's just it's I would regret it. So that's why I eat a healthy whole food plant said That's how, why I exercise every day and I don't abuse my body. And I wish that people out there would do the same. Absolutely. Some good advice there. So um, weight loss and obesity is a big problem, particularly in the Western world with the diets and food that we eat. Uh, the sad diet, the, <laughs> the standard American diet, which does make you sad, ironically, causes a lot of uh, serious weight gain in people. And you've talked about your, you know, your weight loss journey many times, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your weight loss journey, what you went through and what was the sort of pivotal moments for you when you realized you needed to make some changes? Yes. I mean, I, I um, that's no secret. I talk about that all the time. I was overweight. I just didn't feel well, not just because, you know, I was heavy, um, but also because cosmetically bothered me that I was so young and I just, I was so overweight. And it's, it's pretty miraculous, to be honest with you. I had done when I was younger, I was on the keto diet, disgusting. I ate like cheese and gross foods. And I, I did that whole keto thing and I looked sick. I lost a little bit of weight, but I looked sickly. Anyhow, so pretty much when I went on a plant-based diet, these, and I started, you know, really eating a clean, um, healthy plant-based diet, I, I literally just, the pounds started sh uh, just going away. Like I, I, I literally started losing about a pound a week. Without exercise or with exercise? Well, I've always exercised, always. My entire life, I've never not gone to the gym because we, I remember when I was 14 years old, my dad took me to this place called Family Fitness, which is now 24-hour fitness, and signed me up because I was <laughs> overweight and I felt like they were like trying to help me lose weight. So, But we all know exercise doesn't help you lose weight. Exercise will give you muscular development. It'll tone you up. It'll give you cardiovascular benefits. But the reason people gain weight is because they're eating, consuming excess calories. It's not because they're not exercising enough. Most of the time it's diet. I think about 90% of it is diet. Anyway, I continued working out my, my entire life. I was a swimmer. I was a figure skater. I was, I would go to the gym and lift weights. So anyway, that didn't change. Actually, I started exercising less. I cut down my, my exercise down to 20 minutes Whereas in the past, I used to work out for like an hour or two, but I changed my diet. That's what I did. That was my secret. Okay, now the secret's out. And they, they like literally this, the, the, the fat loss I experienced was amazing. I lost over 25 pounds and I literally developed a <laughs> sort of a fitness body rather than this 
you know, unhealthy looking body. I developed a very, very healthy fitness body. And my energy went through the roof. I mean, I, I just can't even tell you how, what, how amazing I felt. And I think that the only way to, 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 to experience it is, is to try it. There is no way I can explain to you how, what a euphoria I had when I started going pan-based and the pounds, the extra pounds were coming off. I mean, literally, if you haven't tried this, you've got to try it. I'm telling you, I highly recommend it. I, I want you to feel that euphoria feeling I had. It, it was like, Ravi, you know, I don't know when what your experience was, but, was, but you know when you're like so fatigued, like you feel like you were hit by a bus and then when you go pan-based, you have this constant buzz, like... <laughs> Hi, like, whoa, I, can do I, I really do know what you mean. I mean, I, I have chronic health issues, predominantly um, mechanical with my spine, lower spinal issues. When I have had a lot of problems because of lack of sleep and chronic fatigue, you know, you do, you feel like a total zombie, you cannot function. And when I have made positive changes, like adding exercise and eating a much more healthier diet, with, which results in a lot less inflammation, I feel like a different person. You're walking along on the street and you just feel that life flowing through you. Whereas previously, I felt felt like a complete zombie. I was just going through the motions in life. So, you know, health, as they say, health is wealth. It is a precious gift. And it's something that we really must cherish. And unfortunately, I don't think enough people really cherish their health and their well-being. You know, and this is where your work and our work at Plant Based News comes in. It's so important to help people realize that their health is a choice. That is something that we can take into our own hands. That being said, you know, I always like to preface that by saying a vegan diet or a healthy plant-based diet is not a panacea for all ills. I've experienced some things pretty recently with some friends who died of COVID-19 who were young, healthy vegans, um, unfortunately not vaccinated. So that definitely is part of the situation. But illness and disease and viruses can can get any of us at any time. But I think it's important to make sure that our bodies are healthy and resilient, because we are in a world of uh, uh, an unpredictable world where things can come at us from different angles, different health situations, pandemics, who knows what's around the corner. So it's important to be physically fit and healthy. Love to just go back a little bit in time, because I really want to talk about your childhood and your and your sort of family history and the food that you grow up around, because I want to talk about the problem of food, particularly as children. We grow up in a world, and most of us grow up in a carnistic world, where we are told that eating animals and eating flesh and eating dairy and cheese and milk is necessary. We have to have it for our survival. If we don't, we will die. I'd love to hear a bit about the food culture that you grew up in, and what kind of foods were you eating? And 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 really, today, are your family, how aware are your family, um, your immediate family and your extended family, of the effect that food has on a person's body? You know, I grew up in Iran. I grew up on a heavy meat and dairy diet, especially dairy. Uh, it's unfortunate because I was very sick from it. And um, of course, I didn't know because, you know, that was the last thing on my mind. Oh, all this mega amounts of dairy I'm eating are making me sick because I thought, oh, that's the healthy stuff. There's got to be something else to it. So yeah, I ate a ton of yogurt. Uh, I drank a lot of cow's milk. I ate a lot of meat, ground beef, especially. I think it was about, so when I was 13, we moved to the U.S. and it got even worse because now the U.S. culture, it's just all about fast food. So I started working at McDonald's <laughs> of all places and I started eating Big Macs and French fries. And so my, my food was even more processed, more unhealthy, more dangerous for my health. And so I kept getting sicker. I kept gaining weight. I was like pretty overweight, but by the time I was a teenager and it continued um, throughout my life until, you know, I discovered the whole food plant-based eating. People ask me, is it hard to be a vegan? And do you have any regrets? And I say, my only regret in life is that I didn't know about this lifestyle earlier. Literally, I feel like as you know, Robbie, you and I, we're talking to people, we're sharing this information with our family and friends. And it's like, you know, sometimes when they don't listen, it's very frustrating because you're thinking, man, if I could just get you to do this, because, you know, one day we're all going to be vegan. I mean, this, what the way we're eating right now is not sustainable for our health. It's not sustainable for the environment. The world is going vegan. And one day people who are not eating vegan are going to think back and feel like, wow, I was such an, excuse my language, dumbass for eating animals. <laughs> I wish I had known. And, you know, so I'm like telling people and I'm like, Hey, look, you need to do this. And they don't listen. And one day they're like, Oh, I wish you had told me sooner. Or I wish you had 
been more aggressive about it but you know it's hard <laughs> you know what i mean but, then, but while you're talking to them like five years before they're like you're so aggressive you're so pushy right. stop trying to force your uh, right. your belief uh, system on my my uh, my lifestyle oh it's crazy i think at the end of the day you know we're all doing what we can do i've kind of tried to let go of the guilt and frustration i feel with friends and family and i just realized at the end of the day i believe in what we're doing i've never felt more sure that this is the right way for human beings to eat you know it's very hard for, for for people to listen to us because sometimes when we are passionate as people it can come across as evangelical and of course they can shut down to that kind of thing and they can shut down to to a sort of passionate outspoken people when it comes to advocacy particularly around animal rights but obviously you know a diet uh, a healthy diet is is what underpins everything that we are trying to educate people on and it can be confusing with all the labels and you know protein this and b12 that and calcium and all these different macro and micronutrients, people telling us that, you know, to have a healthy vegan diet, it needs to be well planned. But as a gastroenterologist, you know, what and your specialty is the gut and, you know, from here to the to the butt. We'll talk about what goes on between from your mouth to your butt. But, you know, when when it comes to what we put in our mouth and what we consume, like what is your, in your opinion, what underpins a really healthy diet, particularly from, from a gut health perspective? From mouth to anus, we have about 100 trillion gut microbiome that live in a symbiotic relationship with us. And um, they consume and metabolize the type, whatever we are eating and um, whatever nutrition we're providing for them. These little bugs basically live on the mucosal membrane of the gut and pretty much there's a protective layer on the mucosa level so the inside of the gut doesn't really allow toxins and certain molecules to just freely go to the other side of the gut and enter our circulatory system right because that could be disease producing so the gut needs to stay very robust healthy and the tight junctions between the cells have to stay robust and healthy so the inside of the lumen and outside of the lumen inside the body have to be separated by this architecture the microbiomes live inside the gut and they're exposed to whatever food you're consuming so when you eat healthy all the metabolites that are produced as the results of this interaction between the food and the gut are healthier. And so those healthy molecules enter your circulation and promote health. On the other hand, when you're consuming unhealthy inflammatory foods, the gut microbiome metabolizes that unhealthy food and produces toxins that enter or inflammatory, inflammatory molecules that enter your circulation, traverse through the gut layer and enter the circulation and promote inflammation. So you really have a choice to eat healthy and promote health as a result of this interaction with the gut microbiome or eat unhealthy and promote inflammation as a result of this food interacting with the microbiome. Now, you, you can do that one or two times. You can eat unhealthy foods one or two times. Yes, some inflammatory foods enter your gut and, you know, into your body. And, you know, that may be okay a few times and you may be able to get away with it. But the cumulative factor for years and years is not pretty. That's where you start having inflammation. That's where you start having all kinds of problems. The other interesting factor is that if you starve the gut microbiome, there could be potentially poor outcomes. The gut microbiome relies on a heavily fiber-rich diet. So when you're eating a fiber-rich diet, the gut microbiome helps build this protective layer on the mucosa layer to, again, keep the inside of the bowel separate from the circulation, circulatory system. What happens is this beautiful glycoprotein structure, what we call it in medicine, sits on the mucosa membrane and and just um, houses the microbiome. Now, if you stop eating fiber and uh, starve the biome and you're not eating enough plants, what happens, the microbes start like utilizing this glycoprotein layer as food. And when they start eating up, chip at it and eating it up, what happens is that protective shield goes away. And that's where you're starting to have that sort of what's called a leaky gut and uh, that the inside of the gut starts giving access to whatever comes inside your gut, toxins and molecules that are not supposed to traverse the the mucosal membrane. And that's where you start 
you start to have inflammation. Because our guts are actually on the outside of our body. When you think about that, it kind of blows your mind because your mouth and your butt are basically holes and a tube connects your mouth to your butt. And it's essentially yeah. a tube that runs through your body and it's filled with the stuff that you eat and liquids, obviously, to digest the foods. So obviously, we carry around with us a lot of uh, bacteria, as you say. I think it's something like two and a half kgs, kilograms of bacteria. I don't know about the kgs, but that's quite possible yeah it's a it's a lot it's like it's like a couple of bags of sugar or something like that in our gut in, in our bodies we interact with these things in all different ways and it's so fascinating what you said about well you know depending on the food that we eat it really changes our relationship with the gut itself and of course the microbiome the gut is the second most innervated organ in the body so after the brain and the spinal cord the gut has the most amount of nerves and so the brain the spinal cord and there is uh, innervation all along the GI tract and there's constant communication the gut is in some kind of a homeostasis and it basically may be communicating with the brain and saying oh I'm used to this type of sugar give me give me more give me more and there's stimulation of certain neurons and nerves and biochemicals that are being produced now if you cut that off you know there's there's some kind of there's cravings and people often say when they they stop eating sugar they they can't stand it for a while they keep craving it but after a while perhaps through the repopulation of the gut microbiome you stop craving those bad things because now you have a, a totally different gut microbiome and that perhaps switches what's being produce as far as neurotransmitters and hormones which communicate with the brain and your cravings change. I believe that most of it has to do with the gut microbiome. When it comes to you know what we should be eating, the actual the nuts and bolts of a good meal, what is the perfect meal for you when it comes to great gut health as well as sort of overall health from a whole food plant-based diet perspective? What does a plate look like? Okay, so when when you if you want to eat know what a healthy plate looks like, for me, what I uh, pay attention to is that my plate has a lot of fiber. So that um, would include um, legumes, grains, fruits, nuts, seeds, and uh, vegetables. So imagine a standard plate. What you want to make sure is that about 20, 25% of that includes protein. So that protein could come from my favorite food, tofu. I love tofu. But it could come from legumes. It could from other types of protein-rich plants. You want about 25%, another 20, 25% of your food, another quarter of it to come from healthy fats. For me, that could be some nuts, seeds, or avocado and the rest of it what you want is colorful vegetables and fruits uh, where you want to get a ton of macronutrients like antioxidants from different colors so you know for me it would be um gosh so many things like i would have you know let's just say i'm eating a buddha bowl i would have peppers i would have celery i would have cucumbers i would have you know mushrooms so it just i can go on and on but there's thousands of vegetables to choose from so you can just change it up and make sure you're getting different colors, different types of fiber, different types of nutrients. You want to have enough healthy fats, enough healthy protein, carbohydrates, uh, fiber-rich carbs, you know, like quinoa, brown rice, and things like that. That, to me, is the nutrition of the immortals. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And what about fermented foods? Should we be having kimchi and sauerkraut? You know, obviously, these foods can be quite expensive in whole food stores. I know that you can make them yourselves fairly easily. But should we be worrying about eating fermented foods every day? Should we be having them a couple of times a week? You know, how often should we be eating these foods? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think anybody does because there has never been adequate research done to say, oh, you know, uh, two slices of kimchi is bad for you, but one is great. Like no one knows. And so what you have to do, I would say, is just make sure you're just like anything else. Don't overdo it. But I, I feel like ferment, it, my gut feeling tells me that fermented foods are probably OK and they're probably healthy. And I don't see anything wrong with it. The question is, if you ate too much, would you like kombucha, you right? You can have too yeah. much kombucha. Yeah. I mean, could that disturb the gut microbiome balance? It's possible, right? You know, I had one patient who came to me one time and she had quite a bit of uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth problems. And um, she was consuming way too much probiotics and she was eating a ton of fermented foods and drinking a bunch of kombucha. And 
I, I was like, look, I don't know. Let's just stop all this and see what happens. And she did better. I don't know. I mean, just this is just my my experience based off and of one. I don't know for whatever that's worth. I just feel like anytime you overdo things, it's probably not a good idea. Mm, yeah, our bodies and our guts particularly have a way of uh, balancing themselves out, don't they? People often talk about detoxing this and detoxing that. You know, if we drink lots of water, eat a balanced, whole food, plant-based diet, uh, we exercise, we move, we look after our mental health, we're probably going to be pretty healthy as people. Um, and when disease does come along, we'll probably be a little bit more resilient. But I think when we always overload our body with too many supplements, with too many protocols and practices every day, and become a little bit obsessed with it, and this is where things like like orthorexia come in. I, I don't know if you talk much about orthorexia, but for those who don't know, it often is a, an obsession with perfection when it comes to health or what we eat. Uh, and it can result in a lot of um, disordered eating in people. It's made particularly bad by things like Instagram, TikTok, and social media, where people see these perfect bodies and perfect lifestyles, not realizing that a lot of it is very heavily photoshopped, filtered, curated um and you don't really see you know the true identity of the person from social media so we definitely shouldn't be looking uh to too many health influences when it comes to our diet and our health we should definitely look at you know people who are experts in health and nutrition such as yourself dr will bolshevitz dr alan desmond you know people who have dedicated and devoted their lives to the study of the the human body and uh, and how it functions but on the topic of the human body and your specialty, gastroenterology, what are some of the sort of key things that go wrong with the gut? And, and have you seen, how many sort of success stories have you seen in your practice with lifestyle medicine? How many of those have been a result that you feel in uh, changing the way people eat? So I, I usually treat diseases of the gastrointestinal tract, meaning, um, you know, esophageal diseases, stomach diseases, small bowel diseases, colonic diseases, liver disease, and pancreatic disease. I see way too many colon cancer um, cases, unfortunately, in um, people who um, don't uh, live a healthy lifestyle. I see a lot of pancreatic cancer in people who drink too much and smoke and eat a standard American diet. Pancreatic cancer is devastating. People die, and I just uh, hate that disease. Um, I see a lot of gastrointestinal, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and it's mainly due to um, eating um, a poor diet and um, obesity is tightly uh, associated with it. And I see, honestly, I see a lot of success stories, you know. Unfortunately, sometimes it's too late, meaning if someone has stage 4 cancer and um, they come to me and they're like, okay, I'm ready to eat vegan. I, I mean, I, there's not very much I, you can do for a person like that because, you know, when you have stage 4 cancer, you better start chemotherapy. I mean, I've had patients like that who come to me and they're like, you know, I don't want to use pharmaceuticals. I'm like, well, too bad. You know, we've got to. Again, the emphasis should be on preventions, but I'm lucky that I do get a lot of patients who look me up and they look at the Institute of Plant-Based Medicine and they realize I'm, I eat a healthy plant-based diet and they want to come to me to prevent disease. Those are the cases I love. Those are the people I love to help because I can really make a difference. You know, They want to be helped. Yes. I, I see about five cases per month. For for example, uh, people who come in with gastroesophageal reflux disease and I put them on a healthy diet and the reflux goes away and they don't need to use uh, medications. I have had a handful of cases who had colitis, um, inflammatory bowel disease, um, who went into remission and stayed in remission uh, with uh, by eating a healthy whole food plant-based diet. I've helped so many patients. I mean, it, it's, I can't even count because I've been doing this for seven years, promoting a healthy uh, plant-based diet. So I've, I have a, a ton of success stories. But the ones that hurt me are the people who are who come to see me when they have advanced disease and now they start, start wanting to be natural and holistic. And that is, it, it, it pains me because I'm like, no, 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 no. You need to, you know, follow the evidence-based medicine available to treat you, but you should also eat a whole food plant-based diet, but that alone is not going to cure you. What you need to do is do both. Medical intervention, right? Yes. When you have healthy, a healthy stool, that's great, fantastic. But it doesn't tell you that your digestion is necessarily 100% healthy because you could be eating meat, processed meat and dairy and a ton of red meat and not enough fiber and still have healthy poops. 
but it does not guarantee that you're not going to have polyps or be prone to cancer. So you could still have healthy poops and 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 be ill because your body is being exposed to a lot of toxins and it's producing polyps in your colon, which colon cancer is a huge problem in this country. So we have to address it. We can't ignore the fact that colon cancer is a huge problem and it kills hundreds of thousands of people um, in America. Colon cancer comes from polyps, which are abnormal growths that are asymptomatic for years. For like 10, 15 years, these polyps are asymptomatic. So you could be eating really unhealthy and your poops look perfectly normal. But anyway, you could have perfectly healthy poops and you're developing these polyps that predispose you to cancer. So just remember that polyps are asymptomatic and you don't always, and or stomach cancer even, you could have, the, you could be eating processed foods and, and have the start of stomach cancer and be totally asymptomatic for years. And so when you do become symptomatic, it's too late, right? But what is considered a normal stool? There's actually a stool chart. It's called the Bristol scale stool chart. And you can download it on the, off the internet or just Google it and it'll pop up pop right up. Generally speaking, there's type one, two, three stools that are hard, bulky and dry and dehydrated. They're painful to evacuate. You have to strain a lot. The number one is like rabbit pellets, really hard. Number two is like sausage shape, but it's very hard and bulky and cracked. And number three is a little bit better than number two, but it's still hard. Type four stools are generally accepted as the normal stool. They look like a sausage or a snake. Um, it's a long piece of formed stool. So form stool is normal. Form stool is not cracked. It's not dry. It looks like a sausage and it's easy to evacuate. It comes out and you have a feeling of complete evacuation. It's not associated with urgency and pain. Type five, six are loose stools. Seven being the extreme side of the spectrum, which is watery, completely watery. And then um, five and six are fluffy and they disintegrate when it comes out into the toilet bowl. People have a feeling of urgency and incomplete evacuation. So one of the medical interventions, which is a little bit gross, but particularly fascinating, are fecal transplants. Now, those are obviously not something you hear about every day. I first heard about it on the wonderful YouTube channel, Seeker Stories. And for those who love science-y, geeky videos, check out Seeker Stories on YouTube. It's fantastic. But this video is about fecal transplants, and it's the idea that you can take fecal matter or poop from a healthy person, blend it up, and put it into the bowels of an unhealthy person, a person suffering with immune deficiency, symptoms of AIDS, uh, serious um, bowel disorders where the body is essentially attacking the bowel. And you see remarkable changes. A person goes from what is immune collapse to almost total cessation of, of their um, symptoms and almost complete health. What is happening when this is happening? <laughs> Well, I know that nowadays, like they're okay. First of all, let me tell you, I was among the first people in the United States who did the fecal transplant. I mean, I was, I started doing it in 2009 when nobody else had heard about it. Like, I remember I, I went to my chief medical officer at the hospital and I said, I have a patient who's dying of C. diff colitis, and if we don't, treat her with this uh, stool transplant, she will die because she was resistant to all the medications and she just would not get better. She was in what we call septic shock. And they looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, are you sure you graduated from University of Southern California, one of the best schools out there? Like, really? That's where you did your training and you want to put somebody else's poop in her body? What are you talking about? Oh my God. So literally, like I had to submit articles and evidence um, the evidence out there and my CMO is like, oh, okay, well, go for it. And back then, this is before it became, you know, like leave it up to, I don't know what happened, but now you can't really do what I did back then. Back then, you would just ask one of the healthy ma family members for some stool and, you know, smash it up, mix it with water and spray it into the colon and people would get better. It's like magic for this disease called C. diff colitis. They get so much, like it's like overnight. It's magical. So I was doing a ton of those. And uh, I was just, the donors would be a, fa a family member, right? And I would make sure they don't have um, HIV or AIDS. They would don't have hepatitis, hepatitis, you know, any of that stuff. And then I would just use their stool. You know, suddenly they're, they're like, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. We have to have these stool banks. And, you know, the stool banks are the only people who can give you the, this, this pill that you can use or the stool that you can use now. It's like very difficult to get. And then COVID happened. A lot of them went out of business. And now I can't get it. Like literally my patients suffer in the hospital and I can't get a stool transplant anymore. 
because, um, you know, it all got politicized, right? But, you know, it's also, so as much as I love this technology, a lot of people are using it for IBD. It doesn't work for IBD. They're using it for other stuff, and they think now it's a fix-it fix it for all, and it's not. Um, you have to be careful. The only disease I have, a com- I've, so far, the evidence is for C. diff colitis. C. diff is a opportunistic bacteria that gets strong when you kill off the healthy bacteria, First of all, if you're consuming antibiotics for every little infection, stop doing it because it's killing off the good flora, the good bacteria. But sometimes you have to, you know, if you have a life-threatening infection, pneumonia, if you have a life-threatening kidney infection and you're dying of sepsis, you have to, you have to use the antibiotics. So what happens is this C. diff um, infection um, comes about as a result of killing off the good bacteria and then it, it causes um, colitis, it causes ulcerations and inflammation in the colon. And the way to kill it is to use other antibiotics like uh, metronidazole or vancomycin. And sometimes they work and sometimes these antibiotics don't work. And so if you fail antibiotic therapy, then the stool transplant is helpful. But um, I've also seen people use it, use it off-label for colitis and it just, colitis meaning ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, and it doesn't work. It's ineffective. So I would recommend to go with the FDA-approved use of it, which is for C. diff colitis for now until we have more information as to what other diseases it works for. Very interesting. Um, obviously, as you say, it's a complex uh, process and protocol and it's not a cure-all, but the idea that you can take healthy stool, which is obviously predominantly made of water, fiber, and things that our body don't doesn't need, and also a lot of bacteria that lives in the lower gut, the lower what's they called in the colon of the body, which you would assume is a sort of like you know it's it's associated with waste and sort of negativity, but really you know as I was saying from our mouth to our gut, it's a beautiful garden of uh, of microbes which which thrive and keep us alive. One thing I'm particularly interested in is the change in our bodies when we change our diets. Our bodies, well, our gut in a way self-selects bacteria based on what we are eating. Now there's these fad diets or these very um, popular diets that we see today like keto and paleo where people are eating vast quantities of bacon and sausages and processed meat and butter. Obviously to a meat eater these diets are a dream. Getting to eat as much of the fatty, protein-rich foods that you love to cook in your kitchen every day. But in your opinion, what are some of the things that people need to be careful of when they're eating these keto and paleo diets? Well, when you're doing that, you're basically not getting enough fiber. And the majority of our food should be fiber-rich, plant-based foods. And so my um, problem with these diets is that they um, will eventually disturb the nice balance of the gut microbiome and uh, create inflammation. I, I really strongly recommend people like that to start eating more plants because even if you are eating bad foods like red meat and processed meat, you can offset some of the problems with by eating more plants. I would, I would say at least if you're going to do that, at least eat enough vegetables to to counteract the deleterious effects of all the um, non-fiber rich foods you're eating. And it actually works. Like you can protect your gut if you're eating enough fiber to kind of erase some of the bad stuff that you're doing with your body when you're eating all that gross sausage and bacon and things like that. What do people do though when you see these alleged doctors online called the likes of Carnivore MD? <laughs> I think his name is Dr. Paul Saladino, and I find it hilarious that his name has the word salad in it when he calls himself yeah. the uh, the Carnivore doctor. Who, how do we work out who to believe, Dr. Angie? Because you go onto social media and everyone's giving us their opinion of what we should be eating. And as as consumers and as everyday people, it can be overwhelming to know what to eat. You know, you go, you turn on the TV and people are saying, you know, butter is back. We need to be eating more butter because saturated fat is essential for human health. And then we go on plant-based news and we're saying saturated fat is bad for your body. It's going to cause endothelial damage. And, you know, so... Who do people believe? Such a good question because you're like, well, listen to the experts and then you have, um, excuse my language, dumbasses like Carnivore MD who tell you to eat a carnivore diet. So then you're like, well, he has an MD, but I think his license was taken away from him. So I don't know if I should count him in as an expert. But anyway, I would say don't listen to me. Don't listen to him. Don't listen to anybody. anybody. Look at the science. I mean, the science is there. There are thousands of randomized controlled trials that tell you uh, the weight of the evidence is telling us that eating a majority plant-based diet is healthier 
than eating cholesterol-rich, saturated fat, rich foods, right? So you you don't have to listen to opinion. I feel like opinion is cheap. We have to go with science. And this science is telling you right there, um, people who who have less disease, who are of normal weight, who live longer. I mean, all these benefits come from eating a whole food plant-based diet. Less heart disease as the number one killer in America, less colon cancer in people who eat a fiber-rich food. So, I mean, my opinion doesn't really matter. I would say trust people who regurgitate science. Would that be fair? When it comes to like what people say, often people say that there are studies and data on any subject and any any kind of viewpoint. You often hear Carnivore MD quoting this study and that study to... And this is where people get accused of cherry picking and cherry picking means to obviously take things that support your narrative. And it can be very easy to say, oh, the sky is blue because the ocean is blue. And the reason the sky is blue is because just the ocean reflecting on the sky. But that's not actually true. It's because of the way the light refracts through the molecules in the upper atmosphere. But if I said to you, oh, the sky is blue because the ocean's blue, and there was a study that suggested that, you might believe me. So I think the lesson is don't just believe people who say there's a study or there's science. You need to look at things yourself and study things yourself and be very cautious about who you believe on social media. Because at the end of the day, people can say they're doctors, but they may just be chiropractors. And of course, there are a lot of chiropractors out there who think that they um, can behave like medical doctors and go out and talk to people about nutrition and viruses and vaccines when they have no experience in epidemiology or virology or nutrition or anything. But because they are wearing a white coat and they've got a stethoscope and they've got a badge like you with their name on it, people look at them and they go, that's a doctor. I must automatically believe what that doctor says. And they say, oh, I got a, I got my, uh, my diploma from Oxford. And then you think they've got an Oxford University graduate, but then you actually look into their history and it's like Oxford, Connecticut or something. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like something, they, something they bought online. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. And it's not just chiropractors. There's other, there are other fields where you can get a doctorate degree, but it's not scientific. It's not a science-based, evidence-based training at all. If you have, for example, something that is scientifically proven to work and it's evidence-based as MDs adopted or DOs, MDs and DOs adopted into their practice as evidence-based practice, right? Alternative medicine comes into play because whatever that we don't use as evidence-based becomes alternative medicine. So whenever you're using alternative medicine for something, you should automatically realize that's just not evidence-based. Do you see what I mean? So then it opens up this whole world for these so-called doctors to practice and say, oh, yeah, yeah, your MD doesn't know anything. Let me give you this X, Y, and Z supplement. And they give that, give people a bag of supplements and call that holistic. Huh. <laughs> so you're not using pharmaceuticals that are evidence-based, but you're giving people garbage in a bag with thousands of supplements and you're calling yourself holistic and natural. And Charging it's okay a thousand dollars a pop. Right. And, and you don't know the side effects of them. I mean, I see a lot of liver disease from like liver enzyme uh, elevations from people eating, taking too many supplements of random stuff. They don't even know what they're taking. And they take like mega doses and they take like different things and there's interactions with that. And they say, oh, it doesn't have a side effect. Really? If something hasn't been tested, it doesn't have side effects. Of course because not. Because something comes from a plant which has, you know, chemicals in it, even though they come from nature, they can still be harmful. You know, this the poison of a snake is natural, but it could still kill you. So that appeal to nature fallacy, which is, oh, I'm consuming something because it's from nature, automatically means it's healthy, it's safe, is completely false. There are plenty of things in nature that can kill us. Cancer is a naturally occurring thing, but it kills us. You know, I think that people, the way people's minds work, and I think it's a bit of a, a flaw in the human psychology, is this um, the Dunning-Kruger effect. The less you know, the more you think you know. And you get a lot of these people who go onto social media, these uh, quotes, health experts or health influencers, and they've read a, an article or they've watched a couple of YouTube videos and they suddenly think they're an expert. And the challenge that we have, I think, is that the world today, there's a lot of people who are science communicators who really know the studies and the data, but they are often people plagued with the imposter syndrome, which is the opposite of the Dunning-Kruger effect. These people do not speak out enough because they don't feel qualified, they don't feel confident in their 
abilities and their experience. And so the world is overrun <laughs> by these people who are, you know, really like caught in the Dunning-Kruger effect where they think they know so much about a subject when they clearly know nothing at all, but they're speaking with such conviction and confidence that their audiences are completely bought into everything that they are saying and they're able to sell their courses and their books and their supplements and their chemicals that they say are going to heal this and that and the next thing and none of it is based on any kind of science and one particular form of um, uh, alternative medicine in quotes I shall put that I have a particular issue with and challenge with but I want to hear your thoughts on it is homeopathy uh, it's been around for hundreds for a couple I think a hundred years roughly and it is you know widely peddled as you know an alternative to medicine, many, many people, millions of people claim that they experience huge improvements in their health from using homeopathic medicine. And obviously the science is unclear. Well, it's, science is pretty clear that it, that it, of what it is, but I'd love to hear if you've had any experience of, of patients with homeopathic medicine and what's your views on this type of, in quotes, medicine. I don't believe in alternative medicine. I'm sorry. It's just, I know, I know I'm breaking a lot of people's hearts because we in the vegan community, we attract a lot of people who want to hear that, yes, the doctors are all terrible and the pharmaceuticals are bad and, and the homeopaths are the way, homeopathic medicine is the way to go. But you know what? If it's not evidence-based medicine, I pay no attention to it. I have a license to practice medicine. I'm a conventional medical doctor. I will I, I work on preventing disease by eating a whole, uh, um, healthy whole food plant-based diet. I will recommend that all day because there's enough evidence for that. I will recommend not smoking and not drinking excessively and exercising every day because there's evidence for that. But And, and when you're sick, I will recommend evidence-based medicine, whether it has to be surgery or medications, I will um, recommend that because I practice 100% evidence-based medicine. Homeopathic medicine, there's not enough evidence for it. I don't know. I'm not going to recommend it because I don't want to be a quack. I'm I'm sorry. I know I'm breaking a lot of hearts because in the vegan community, we do attract some um, non-evidence-based people and they want to hear that, you know, yeah, you're right. Medicines are bad for you. You should go listen to the homeopathic medicine people out there and sometimes it might work. I don't know. I mean, um, well, placebo it's, is a, it's a powerful, uh, thing that we don't, fully, we don't fully understand yet. Um, yeah, my personal opinion, I've read a lot about homeopathic treatments. I also, if anyone's listening who uses homeopathic, homeopathic medicines and believes in them, I really encourage you to go and read the history of homeopathic medicine, how it was created and how the original people that created it, how they prescribed it. And it's very interesting. And I'll kind of paraphrase because you'll find it fascinating when it was originally given to people as a in quotes medicine the doctor who gave these and i say doctor in the loosest possible term but the, the the health person who gave it to their patients they told the patients that the medicine would only work if they stayed in they rested they ate healthy food they drank lots of water and there was a list of about 27 different things that you had to do for the medicine to work isn't that fascinating? So ironically, the person who originally created homeopathic medicine was possibly using lifestyle medicine as a way to treat his patients, but the pill was really just a placebo. And people need to be able to take something and be told, take this pill, it will heal you. Take this pill, it will fix this, it'll fix that. So psychologically, it's such a fascinating thing because it's a multi-billion dollar industry, the homeopathic industry. But if you look at the history, it's based really on lifestyle medicine, and it's kind of like become this very commercial entity. So, you know, the power of, my, of, of the mind is amazing. Obviously, people who are in a state of disease and illness do need to believe they can get better. I genuinely believe the power of the mind in our sort of psychology and our um, nervous system and our sort of sense of well-being is deeply entwined in our sense of self. If we do not feel we can get better, if we, if we do not feel there's any hope for ourselves, it can be a lot harder, especially for medical professionals, to get Get through to people right getting them to listen to our advice and getting them to to make those changes so i do think there is a place for emotions and sort of mind when it comes to medicine and that leads me nicely onto my next question really which is about weight loss and health and the connection between physical health and mental health the two are deeply entwined and over the centuries we haven't really spoken enough or talked enough about that connection it's often always been about the body you know what we can do physically what we can take pills wise or what 
we should be doing, but very little is connected into the mind. Now, the gut and brain axis is something gastroenterologists will talk about and the connection between our brain and our gut. This is a lot of magic that goes on there and we probably need a three-hour episode to talk about that. But I'd love to hear from you as a gastroenterologist the connection between the brain, the mind, uh, you know, the sort of our thoughts and our gut and that relationship and what should we be doing as people to improve our gut health and our well-being when it comes to our mental health specifically absolutely yes there's a that's 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 huge and you know it's evolving every day but the mind gut connection is absolutely important basically what it means is that the gut and the nervous system of the gut is connected to the brain and the nervous system in the brain that's what it means and so how are they connected well just to put it simply the um, brain is the most innervated brain and the spinal cord, which are connected are the most innervated organs, meaning they have the most nerve fibers, but the gut is the second most innervated organ, which means it has the second most amount of nerves. And um, there's constant communication between the brain, the spinal cord and the gut. All these uh, the nerve endings that end up in the gut that control the gut, for example, when you eat the nerves, of um, the gut start stimulating the gut to move, right? They start stimulating hormone production. All of that is going on in synchrony. Pretty much when you eat something, there's signals that go from the gut to the brain and there's signals that go from the brain to the gut. It's constant, like, uh, you know, it's like a loop, almost like a loop system. The interesting thing is that um, in, the, in the past, we really minimized the importance of the brain-gut connection. We didn't know how important it is, but there's recent studies that show that a lot of these hormones and neurotransmitters are actually being produced in the gut rather than in the brain. For example, see if you study the neurotransmitter production, you, you understand that what you eat stimulates production of certain neurotransmitters like serotonin, like, um, you know, some other neurotransmitters and hormones. And these hormones leave the gut, enter the circulation and end up in your blood, stimulate the rest of your body. So everything you put in your body, in your gut could have a positive or negative effect on your mental health. We also know that there is a huge correlation between um, anxiety, depression, and irritable bowel syndrome. More than 35% of people, 30, 35% of people who have irritable bowel syndrome, and the figure could be higher, excuse me, don't quote me on that, but a great majority of people who have irritable bowel syndrome also have depression and anxiety and vice versa. Then the question is, was it the chicken or the egg? Like, were they anxious and depressed and developed gut problems or did they have gut problems and de developed depression? And, and no one really knows the answer to that. But we know that there is a correlation between depression, anxiety and irritable bowel syndrome. So what can you do when you have irritable bowel syndrome? In my practice, what I do is I try to pay a lot of I pay attention to mental health. I usually start helping patients with um, first of all, I start helping patients with nutrition. I emphasize on eating a healthy diet. I, I ask them to start eating a whole food plant-based diet and start eliminating some of the toxic foods that they're eating that is probably promoting to an unhealthy gut microbiome balance. So we start there. Of course, you know, it takes years to notice a difference because when you've been terribly for years, many, many years, that when you switch to a whole food plant-based diet, some people get immediate, uh, you know, health benefits, but it takes time for certain other people. And so, but at the same time, I help them with pharmaceuticals to help them calm the nerves of the stomach and help them be able to have a bowel movement if they have irritable bowel syndrome with constipation or eliminate their di diarrhea if they have debilitating diarrhea. But I also set them up with a mental health specialist, right? We have all of that infrastructure in the at the institute so we help people with mental health diets as well as medications to help them uh, calm the nerves it's interesting because some of these old antidepressants we used to use like i don't know if you've ever heard of elevil or, or amitriptyline this is a, an antidepressant like a, many many decades ago this antidepressant was used for anxiety and depression and we know that it's not a very good depression medicine now but nowadays it's actually used for irritable bowel syndrome to calm the nerves it's interesting because yeah so a lot of antidepressants help ibs and uh, vice versa so, a lot of antidepressants are serotonin reuptake inhibitors aren't they and so yes. what's going on in the gut we're making a lot of serotonin it's going everywhere 
But if we use an SSRI, the SSRI is actually acting on the gut. It's not acting on the brain. And so it's lowering the serotonin from maybe entering into other areas of the body and allowing serotonin to stay in the gut. And even if the serotonin is not going away into the circulation, what's happening is the serotonin is being made in the gut and it's stimulating in that in, in that junction between the, uh, the where it gets produced. It stimulates a nerve that's innervating the gut. And that nerve gets the signal of serotonin and, and it conducts feedback into the spinal cord. And that feedback ends up into the brain and the loop continues. It's pretty fascinating. It is fascinating. And we we'll, could definitely, I think we're going to need to book in an episode too to talk more about the, <laughs> the gut brain <laughs> access because I'm fascinated it. And I really would love to talk more to you about the neurons that are in the gut lining in the next episode too, because there's a lot of stuff about how we feel things in our gut. People say that they feel in their gut. We often just make the assumption that we feel in our brain. But what if we are actually experiencing emotions within the neurons of our gut too? But let's leave that for the next episode. We'll keep everyone hanging there for more. But I've absolutely love this episode it was really great to chat to you um, before I let you go though I'd love to ask you my one final question which I ask all my guests Dr. Angie if you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig you obviously are not gonna eat the pig because you're a very passionate vegan but if I could give you one vegan dish one music track or music artist and one book what would you take with you I would um, eat a lot of coconuts and pineapples <laughs> Um, okay oh you would give me a dish to take with me yeah one vegan dish one book and one music uh, artist oh i'll take tofu for sure i want a tofu dinner with uh asparagus my artist would be probably gosh that's a hard one either pink you can call me irrelevant insignificant i won't call on you at all uh, Lady Gaga, Madonna. Adele. You could, I'll take any of those. And then... One book, How to Win Friends and Influence Others. That's the one I want. I would read it for the 14th time. <laughs> Dr. Angie, thank you so much for joining us in the PBN podcast. It's been fascinating and I, I really can't wait for part two. My absolute pleasure. It was so nice talking to you, Robbie. And it was a pleasure to be a part of this wonderful platform of yours, Plant Based News. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We'll be back next time with more food, fashion, animals, environment, and everything in between.